The reading will be from Luke chapter 10, verse 20, 25 through 42. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, he went, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped, him from, uh, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down, to the, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put, on, he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse for you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. So Carolina, Anna, I wonder if you are as tired of answering this question as I was when I was at your spot. What's, what are you gonna do? You know, how many times have you been asked some version of that? You know, where are you going to college? What are you going to major in? What career are you going to have? And, you know, and all of that, honestly, where I was at at the time is all those things were kind of up in the air. There was a lot of wrestling. A lot of, I kind of was late in the game to decide on my college and had ideas about majors but didn't really know and really had ideas on careers but just wasn't quite sure. But there was this, like, excitement but also this nervousness about this, like, new stage that I was entering into about, you know, new kind of independence and freedom and responsibility and I got really tired of answering those questions um, so let me ask you a different one different way and I think maybe it asks a question that gets us closer to where scripture really invites us to think about so what kind of person are you going to be and when you ask it that way it it really I think focuses you where I would encourage you to be focused on um, and and I think it's where this text that we're looking at this morning these two stories in Luke chapter 10, get us focused. Because when you ask the question, what are you going to do? A lot of that question is really a question about, you know, accomplishments and, and achievements. 
Um, but when you ask the question, what kind of person are you going to be, wh what it invites you to think about is, you know, your kind of essential ethic, what you believe, what you value, how are you going to live your life? And what I want you to notice here is, and I, I think you'll see it here in this text, is that when Jesus teaches us, teaches his followers about following him, he really turns the focus. He doesn't focus at all on accomplishments and achievements. The early church will accomplish re remarkable things, um, but it's not because he tells them, hey, go do great things, um, go achieve a lot uh, and prove your worth. But he focuses not on accomplishments and achievements, but instead he focuses on ethics, who you are, uh, action that reveals what's most important about you, action that reveals, uh, really ultimately reveals a relationship, reveals the, the love that God has for you revealed through Jesus Christ and the love that we are called to reflect back to him. These two stories are probably familiar to a lot of us, um, but what I want you to see, what Luke wants us to see is that these two stories are linked. And they're, they're together giving us a picture of uh, his answer. What kind of person are you going to be? It gives us the answer that Scripture offers. If you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open them to Luke 10, verse 25, and see these two stories together. But three different pieces of, of advice for our graduates that I think come out of this um, and the answer that he offers. First is uh, be somebody whose head and heart are united in following God. Think about where your head is going. Think about where your heart is going. And ultimately, those two are going to be expressed in where your hands are going. Head, heart, and hands all built towards following God. We get introduced in Luke 10.25 to a lawyer, which is disappointing to me, but it's a reality of Luke that the lawyers never really get um, a positive light at all in Luke. And so anytime you see lawyer, think, all right, it's going to be a negative thing here. Um, but here you see a lawyer who has the head, but not the heart. Now what Luke does is he telegraphs the story. He telegraphs how we're supposed to read these people. Um, he does it throughout these two stories. And so in verse 25, we get immediately, we understand who this guy is. Because what he says, it's a lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. So these, this is one of those questions that really isn't an honest question. Uh, he's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to do something. Uh, he, he has some kind of duplicitous or hostile intent as he's talking to Jesus. So we, we got this, have this negative impression of the lawyer from, from the first moment. And then he asks the question, which is itself is interesting. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and, and when he asks that, that gives us pause because that's an unusual question for a first century Jew to be asking. They weren't really talking in that language. That, that's a language that maybe is familiar to us in the 21st century in, in kind of American Christianity. But we often think about that when we ask it, or at least when we've asked it over the last 150 years or so, a lot of times what people are thinking about is, it's like he, what he's asking is, how do I lock up heaven? You know, how do I get that heaven thing secure for me so I can go on about my business? But that question, where it's been asked, where you can kind of trace it through uh, history, the Jewish history and Old Testament history, it's really asking something about more than just locking up a future. Well, really, what it is asking is, how do I please God in all of my life? So uh, he asks the question, and Jesus answers with a question, two questions really, what's written in the law? How do you read it? 
So he asks him to interpret that own question. He, he wants him to answer his own question. And the trick is, in that head versus heart thing, is he knows the right answer. He gives a fantastic answer. What does he say? He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And what he's doing is bringing together two different verses. So this is more than just knowing one verse and how to quote it. He's actually kind of connecting the dots. Um, Deuteronomy 6.5 would have been deeply familiar to first century Jews, the kind of thing they say every day, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And, and that piece, he takes Deuteronomy 6.5 and he interprets it and adds another piece with your whole mind or your whole self. So he understands correctly that Deuteronomy 6 is the charge to Israel to be a child of God, is to love God with our whole being. You know, he sees that heart and strength, and heart, soul, and strength together is also thinking about the mind. There is no part of us that isn't somehow set upon loving God. That's what it is to be a child of God and to be faithful as a child of God. That's the call on their life. That's the call on our life as followers of Jesus Christ. We are to do that, to love the Lord. And then he brings in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he merges those two as if it's just one command. And that's insightful. That's seeing that uh, there is a connection between the vertical and the horizontal. I always get those two backwards. I think I've got it right. So you always have this sense of, of the vertical, that he understands that he has a relationship with the God of the universe. And it's a relationship that is defined in mutual love. God loves us. We love God. So he sees um, how to please God with his whole life. Part of it is, is a life given in love and devotion to God, but that is connected with the horizontal. It's connected with how he lives among others. And so he sees the charge to love your neighbor as yourself as a charge to put into practice your love of God by the way you love and care for others. He sees that connection, and here it's you notice, even at this point, early on, and we'll get more of this as the story unfolds, but that love is not primarily a feeling here, but an action. Love expresses uh, a love for God. It's a life that is spent expressing a love of God at the center of everything. He understands some things. He knows the right answer. His head is there. He's, he's giving an insightful answer, and Jesus affirms that. Verse 28, he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. You answer your own questions, you already know. This is what it is to follow God. But again, telegraphing where he's at, what does he do in his response? Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So again, Luke sets us up. He tells us where this guy's heart's at. Um, to, the, the desire to justify himself, it, what, what's he asking? He's wanting to somehow limit this kind of awesome, comprehensive command 
these two verses that he's merged to say this is the essential ethic of the Old Testament. You want to know what is, it, what is the Old Testament fundamentally about? It's about teaching people how to love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's probably not what most people think of when they think about what the Old Testament is fundamentally about, but he understands it, and Jesus affirms that. That's what it is to be a follower of God. That's what the law is essentially about, but he's got no heart for that. And when he asks the question, who is my neighbor, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to downwardly define that definition of neighbor. And when he does that, he is doing something that's well consistent with what people were doing at the time. Uh, and Jewish interpretation in the first century, taking those commands in the law, that was pretty common understanding that those two kind of summed it up. Like that was the essence of what it was. That's, that's what the law is fundamentally about, loving God and loving neighbor. So what they did was they had built a whole lot of interpretations to narrow the definition of who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Um, well, they essentially said that the neighbor is your fellow Jews and like proselytes, folks that are interested in becoming Jewish. So if you are kind of part of the home team, then you're my neighbor. And everyone else, we don't have to worry about that. So what, what the lawyer was doing was he was looking for the legal minimum. What do I have to do to get by? And in that, he reveals this fundamental misunderstanding about who God is and how to follow him. He's desiring to justify himself. And so Jesus replies with this famous story. And that maybe leads us to the second piece then of what it is, what kind of person do you want to be? What does the Bible suggest about what kind of person you want to be? We want to be somebody whose head and heart are united in following God. And I'm going to talk a little bit more on that later. But then second, we're to be a people who practice generous compassion on anyone you can. He sets up the story, and it's, it's, it's really, we were talking in our class this morning, kind of picking it apart. It's a brilliantly framed story. Um, it's written, I mean, even as you kind of mind the details of it, it's written to be remembered. Like everything about it, there's a lot of repetition, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a cadence, like a, a lyrical kind of poetry to, to the story. But it's written to remember, but it's also, it, again, bec- it's written to remember, and part of that is that it's, it's a surprising story. And, and we know it so well, I think we can ignore and forget about just how surprising this is. Because... You start off, you have this man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and Jericho's down below sea level. It's one of the hottest places you can ever go. It's this, he, he, but it's, it, it, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho is, was known then vividly as this dangerous place because there are a lot of mountain passes and a lot of, there are caves all along this place. It's a great place for robbers to hide out and kind of, you know, really rob people along the way. So the idea that a, a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho alone would have been fell, you know, fell upon by robbers, stripped and, and bare, and he, all these things happened to him, left half dead, that would have been kind of a normal expectation. And here he is in this desperate situation, and then a good thing happens. And, and, and even the way it's written, verse 31, there's this sense, by chance, oh, Bible doesn't really believe in chance like it doesn't teach chance it's by chance this is like divine encounter God provides by chance a priest shows up which is one of the good guys like 
one of the righteous people, one of the holy men shows up. So like here he is desperate. He's going to die here if somebody doesn't come and help him. And all of a sudden, he gets a priest showing up. Oh man, praise God, we're, we're, he's saved. But that's not what happens. By chance, the priest is going down the road, and then you have a little of this cadence. He saw him. He passed by on the other side. So to the Levite, well, if the priest isn't going to help, well, then the Levite can. And, you know, the, the priest and the Levite together, the Levite's a, it's not one of the priestly order, but he's from the right tribe, and he would have been kind of like a priest assistant. So, you know, maybe the priest is going on to preach somewhere, so he's got his head in the clouds. You know, those preachers, they can be that way. But at least to get the assistant, like, here he is working, like he's supposed to be kind of connecting with people. So he's going to be, be there to help. But notice what the Levite does. He saw him. He passed by on the other side. That seeing and passing by. But now together, the priest and the Levite, again, from a first century perspective, from the Jewish perspective, as they're hearing the story, here you've got two witnesses. That's, that's like confirmation. The two witnesses, both with religious authority. Here, together, the priest and the Levite are giving testimony to the religious way. They should be testifying to the right way. Their status is influential. The fact that the priest and the Levite are saying this is the way it ought to be, that would be like conclusive proof for a lot of people. That's the right answer. And so Jesus is really giving this indictment of kind of the religious establishment. He's saying that the way that religious people are thinking about this is wrong. Um, that it's the priest and the Levite that have this response because he compares it to, of all people, this unlikely witness in the Samaritan. You notice he gives no explanation for why they pass him by. It could be a lot of things. They could be afraid that, that he's unclean. Yeah, you know, it could be that they think he's dead, so he's a corpse. They'd be unclean then. So they're concerned about ritual purity. They could be that they're afraid they're afraid of being robbed. It could be some kind of scam. Uh, it could be that they recognize that he's not one of them, so they don't like him because he's a foreigner. That, there could be any of those things, and Jesus gives no explanation. And that's, again, strategic. It's part of a brilliant story because in that space, people can kind of fill in the gaps. And maybe as they fill in the gaps, what it does is it makes them fill a little bit of themselves in there. They find the things that made the stories reasons why we might pass by, why we might say thanks but no thanks but then he gets the unlikely witness because it's the samaritan that shows up verse 33 and, and when the samaritan comes on the scene for the the reader and the hearer the people in the presence the lawyer most assume that you got a samaritan you've got a villain in the story we've talked over the last few weeks we've seen a few references to samaritans already um, they're kind of the bad guys for the jewish people um, you know, we were talking in our class this morning, like, how would the Samaritans compare to the Gentiles? Well, at some level, the Samaritans were most like the Jews. Uh, so they, you know, they both, worship, they, they both read something of the Torah, and the Samaritans read at least part of the Bible as authoritative, but not all of it. They, they, they were kind of considered Jewish half-breeds. They had some descendant from, from Abraham, but, but not fully. Um, they, they, they worshiped Yahweh, but they thought they should worship in Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. And all of this meant that they were so alike that the Jews hated them most of all. Um, so the Gentiles, they could see, well, they're just Gentiles. What do they know? But the Samaritans were like full of what they saw as a whole lot of half-truths. So they couldn't stand them. 
Now, for Luke, most of the references of the Samaritans are positive, but the last time we got a reference to the Samaritan is the one negative time you get a picture of the Samaritans. And it's Jesus, a couple chapters ago, or the last chapter, he's passing through Samaria. Um, he, they, he sends people on ahead to try to secure housing, and they won't touch him. They don't want anything to do with him because he's heading on to Jerusalem. He's worshiping in the wrong place. And so they cast him aside, and his disciples say, hey, can we go burn them down? Can we, just, can we rain down fire on them? And he rebukes them. Uh, because that's not how he wants them to respond to the Samaritans. Um, th- and, and in that, that response, I mentioned a few weeks ago, that that maybe revealed something of their animosity and their hatred. With the Samaritans, they're quick to bring down the fire of judgment. Um, and so here it's the Samaritan, though, that responds differently. And in that, like he's forcing them to think this is one of those outcasts, one of those people you would have dismissed or overlooked, the people you cast aside, but look at his response. Because as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, saw past, saw past, no, saw him, he had compassion. Instead of passing by, he had compassion. And then the next few verses are filled with what that compassion looked like, a lot of action. He went to him. He bound up his wombs, pouring on oil and wine, that is to soothe them, and to clean them. Uh, then he set him on his own animal. So he's walking as he, car- as he takes him there. He brings him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he, he took out two denarii. It's like two days' wages, uh, which would be roughly enough to keep him housed and cared for for about a month. And, and he says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I get back. So he's not only going to take care of him for a month or fund the next month of his life, he's going to make sure to say, if, if he needs anything more, I'm there for him. It's full of action as this compassion is, is action. It's the, it leads him to action. The most despised here is the one who helps. Uh, this is that message that is, exists throughout Luke of this message of reversal. He's lifting up the lowly. But this help is extravagant. And then what does he ask? He flips the question. Remember, the question was, who is my neighbor? So... Whatever status is out there in the world, which of those people belong to me? Who's got the right status that they'll be identified as my neighbor? But instead, what Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Um, And the lawyer perceives it correctly, the one who showed him mercy. Maybe he's a little reluctant to say the Samaritan. (laughs) The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So he flips the question. It's not about minimal action. Who are the bare minimum of people that I've got to do this for? But it's a picture of generous grace. Um, It's love that makes a neighbor. Not race. Not locale where you live. Or the relationship you might have because you've got some affinity or some shared allegiance. It's love that makes a neighbor. It's a relationship that moves from legal obligation to gift giving. Then, how do you deal with all of that? Let me suggest the third piece in our ethic is that we look to Christ as the balance point in our life. Because you have that story, that seems to all make sense, but then you sit alongside Martha and Mary, and there's a surprising people uh, picture here. Because what you see is... Uh, a picture of a struggle with balance. 
I was thinking this week, I, I'm wrapping up six months with, with a hockey team, getting ready to change teams, but the last six months, every week, uh, I've had some people yelling at me the same thing every week. Because like when I am on the ice, when I'm playing a game and I get a hold of a puck, I've got this bad habit that what I'm trying to think of is how do I get rid of this thing as quickly as possible. And so I've got people yelling at me because I know there's some really heavy, big, burly guys that are getting ready to crash into me. And I'm trying to get rid of that so they don't crash into me. And they're telling me, hang on to it, hang on. And what they're keep telling me is you've got more time and you've got more space than you think you do. So I've got to hang on to this thing. But I was kind of amused the other night because we've got another guy on my team who's really fast skater and he's he's got this really great shot but the problem that he has is he he's kind of because he's fast he kind of skates around a lot of people and he winds up with space but then he gets it and you see him out there with this wide open spot between he and the goalie and there's like this big back of the net that you're looking at and you know he's a good enough shot to put it there and then he hangs on to it and he won't let go. And he keeps saying, like, I, I got to get the perfect shot. I got to get the perfect shot. And they're yelling, there is no such thing as a perfect shot. You just have to shoot. And I finally, like, commented one of the guys. It's like, you know, if you took the two of us together and balanced them, we could be a pretty decent hockey player. Because I would hold on a little longer and get a, de- get a better shot or a better pass. And he would actually shoot the thing once he got a hold of it. Um, and that's our struggle. Like, that's the basic struggle you're going to have in life, right? We, we're, there's errors on both sides. There's always this struggle for balance. Um, in, in, the good, in, the, in the Good Samaritan, it's the active Samaritan who's praised. All of the stuff that he does is praised because he shows real compassion. On the other hand, in the story of Martha and Mary, it's the active Martha who's criticized. For all of the stuff that she's doing, she's missing something. And what she's, her struggle is, is right there in verse 40. You've got Jesus coming to their house. They're welcoming. Here they are hosting the King of Kings. They're hosting Jesus. But Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much serve, serving. And again, just like the lawyer, Luke is telegraphing for us. He's telling us how to read her action. She's got a struggle. It's not that she's serving. It's that she's distracted by the serving the context for all of this and we've talked about a lot longer than we're going to but the the whole the the context is the law of hospitality there's a certainly in the middle east in the first century there's this high standard of hospitality what does a guest owe the obligation you have to a guest when you receive them in your house and a lot and it says a lot about you and the way you treat a guest and here you have jesus of all people the teacher is there in your house there is a sense of obligation there So the fact that she's wanting to serve is not a bad thing. But somehow, in the course of her hospitality, she has become so self-preoccupied, she's ignoring him. Um, Her self-preoccupation, suddenly the, 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 the stuff that's before her has become less about how do I love and care for the person in my presence it's really become about her and appearing to do the right thing and appearing to be the one who's elevating and being the great host. Uh, it's her activity has distorted her view of things and her priorities. She's distracted by a good thing and she has forgotten the best thing. 
That's that picture of distraction in verse 40. And it comes out in what she finally says. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And in that call for help, you can see self front and center. And what does Jesus do in correcting her? He's gentle. Martha, Martha. That's a gentle kind of image there. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about any, many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it won't be taken away from her. The struggle is resolved when he calls her to look to, to Jesus, to look to him as, as the balance point. Mary is praised for sitting at Jesus' feet, which is the proper posture of a student to a teacher. She's treating him as he deserves. He is the teacher. We are to sit at his feet and learn from him. She is a student submitting to the master. And in that, she is demonstrating that Jesus will be the source of that balance for her. Christian Smith is a modern sociologist. He's done a lot of work thinking about the spiritual life of of young people in America. And he wrote his follow-up book. He said several really well-known ones. But the one he just came out with, he talks about the challenge of U.S. Christianity. American Christianity is a kind of this individualistic thing, but the, the phrase that he uses is that for a lot of folks in America today that are identify as Christian, they see Jesus as a kind of back pocket Jesus, that Jesus is, is something you have in your back pocket that you pull out when you need to kind of serve your needs. And when you don't need them, then you kind of just shove them back in the back pocket. And the other phrase that he had that really struck me is he talks about for a lot of people, faith is a part of a kind of bundle of respectability that you you have like faith sitting alongside like maybe a you know respectable career and a good job and family and all these other things the trappings that say if I've got all of this stuff together then I can like have this kind of respectable life uh, but that isn't what Jesus is calling for here Jesus is that balance point that makes everything else make sense he's the filter through which we understand how we're going to live well. Uh, that we are, actually as Christians, we're not simply cultural critics. A lot of times I think we can rest too often there that we become the critics of culture, but that we're culture creators holding up Jesus um, as the point from which we understand how everything works, everything functions. Jesus is that center point. And for Martha, she has become distracted in her service uh, and self-involved in that distraction, just as the lawyer in his mastery of the law had become self-serving and seeking to justify himself. How do you balance those two extremes? You have Jesus right in the middle. And so those are really the three keys. First, we are people who are setting our heart and our head on Jesus. Uh, we don't waste our time. And really for graduates, what I'd tell you is don't waste your youth with narcissism and self-involvement. You are entering a phase of life that you will be tempted, if you haven't already felt it, you're going to be tempted to be consumed with self. You know, get your degree, get those things, get your career in place, do all of these things. Reject that script. Set your mind and your heart on Jesus. Pursue Him in these years. And all those other things will be added to you. You'll figure all those other things out, but put your focus and your head, your heart together on Jesus. Here it's head and heart and hands that all come together that when all are going that direction, it's really a remarkable thing. And you don't have to wait 
till all that other stuff gets figured out before you can be that person right now. Second, look for how you can love well. You will encounter more diversity. You'll encounter difficult pe- people. You're, you're in a world that is extremely divisive. You're told every day, we're all told every day, um, just love those who are like you. Um, love those who kind of follow your script. And Jesus offers a picture of neighbor love that defies all of that. Um, Jesus calls us to love. And then I think this is so important. It's Jesus that shows us what love is. This is a confusing term. Love, we think it's such a simple thing. It is such a confusing term. What is often described as love in our world today is not love at all. And in fact, it is the opposite of love. Um, Look to Jesus to not only for how you generously love those around you, love your neighbor, but to know what that love looks like. And then third, that you set Jesus as that balance point of your life. If you put him in your back pocket, if you make him and you make your life in the church just kind of part of that bundle of respectability, uh, it won't last. Because if you hadn't already figured it out, sometimes being a Christian isn't all that respectable. Um, Don't put him in the back pocket. Because as soon as you take him out of the center, something else is going to be that balance point. And it may be yourself, it may be career, it may be money, it may be friends. Something is going to be that balance point. Make Jesus that balance point. Acknowledge him for who he is. He is Lord. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And live your life revealing, showing, demonstrating that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as you do that, you're living your life, I encourage you, to, together with the church. Don't make your faith some kind of private individualistic thing that the church becomes just a consumer service provider. Don't abandon the church. Live life together with the church as we, as a people, are calling each other, encouraging each other, building each other up to the be, the, be the people that God has called us to be. So what kind of person are you going to be? So graduates, we're not setting you out today into an ocean in some kind of rudderless ship where you're going to be tossed to and fro by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Instead, what we're offering you is Jesus Christ himself. And we have shown you and we've offered you Jesus' bride, the church, as the rudder for your lives. He is the one he'll see you through, wherever the waves tossed you. And that church will be that family that will support you, that will pray for you, that will be there with you, continuing to point you to Jesus whenever you might be inclined to just put him in your back pocket or forget that he's there at all. Keep following Jesus with head with heart, with hands, in all that you do. Stay connected to Christ's church, and he will lead you to be the kind of person you are truly meant to be. Let's pray. God, I pray for our graduates. I pray for all of us. Help us to see our own imbalance for the way that we uh, do not love you well in the way that we treat others, the way that we can become distracted by good things and ignore the best thing. Uh, Keep... Jesus as our balance point. Teach us to follow you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. If we can pray with you, if we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.